Good morning to all of you, and good morning to those who listen in on our, our website through our podcast. And many of you are kind enough to send us notes through the course of the week, and uh, it's good to have you join us remotely that way as well. Listen, I was in a little bit of a panic earlier this morning, watching the clock count down to the time when uh, we were about to begin the message, and I couldn't find my glasses. I mean, I, I was looking everywhere, everywhere for them. And I found them eventually, and, and you'd never guess, well, you probably would guess if you know me, you'd never guess where I found them. On my head. Yeah. Right in front of my eye. I just happened to reach up to scratch. And, and, and you know that when your glasses are on your head and you still think you can't see clearly, that that's a fault of the brain and not of the eyes. That's fuzzy thinking, not just fuzzy seeing. You know, for For centuries now, as the church has struggled to resolve its fuzzy thinking about what it's meant to be in the world, what it's meant to do, they have turned their attention to one particular section of the Bible. As we've wrestled through some of the really important issues about about what the gospel says to different cultures, about how it's meant to to move from nation to nation in, in a way that's winsome and, and relevant and, and practical and true, uh, about how the church organizes itself uniquely for each new generation and raises up the appropriate kind of leaders in, in order to give, to give the good leadership that both the church and the generation deserves, about how the church manages transitions, the, the good ones and the hard ones, uh, about how the church meets the crying needs of the world around them. In every case, the church has tried to to deal with some of the fuzziness of their thinking and seeing by going back to the book of Acts. Acts is, I think, the one of the most fascinating, one of the most dynamic books in the Bible. It's appropriately named. It is an action book from beginning to end. It is not filled with a lot of, of stopping and, uh, and pondering long theological discourses. It is about the doing of the gospel. And so we begin today, we launch into a new teaching series that we have entitled The Gospel in Motion. And uh, if you flip in the back page of your order of service, you'll see an outline for the next 24 weeks. Now that's going to take us through to the end of this year and early into next year. And you might ask, you know, beyond just the question of, oh my goodness, am I going to be able to make it? But why? I mean, why do that? Why the book of Acts? And why now this juncture in the life of our church? The past few years have seen a, a lot of change at the life of MCBC. We've We've launched again a second service in order to double our capacity. We completed the successful relaunch of a, of a little church down the road. And for those of you who were part of us back then, uh, greetings from Pastor Chris Stephanidis. From that little church, uh, just fighting so hard to, to keep the doors open so they could be a relevant witness. From that church of eight, they are now a thriving gathering of 80 or more people and, and wrestling with, uh, with how to uh, extend that into the community. I mean, God has done incredible things there. We have, over the past four years, doubled our mission budget. We've created a, a vibrant new department of ministry in the area of discipleship and small groups, and, and we've really seen that flourish under Pastor Sheldon's good leadership. We've expanded our worship ministries, and I think you had a a feel or a taste for that this morning. And in the midst of all of that, 
it happens in this particular area of the world. Uh, the GTA, uh, this thriving cosmopolitan international metropolis where long-term planning now is measured in months and not in years just because things change so very quickly. The book of Acts. The book of Acts is about the church at the very beginning, the earliest church, as it was essentially launched into a cosmopolitan urban setting that in some ways at least isn't dissimilar from our own. I think we're going to learn a lot from the book of Acts over the next 24 weeks. Most importantly though, I hope, uh, I hope that we learn this. MCBC like the early church, Mississauga City Baptist Church has never existed purely for the benefit of those who are already convinced, for the care and keeping of believing Christians, of Christ followers. It's also here for residents of Mississauga and Brampton and Milton and Etobicoke, Mississaugans, if, if that's a word, who aren't yet sure, who aren't sure what they believe, who want to check it out, who, who want to taste it and, and weigh it out, who want to see whether or not it makes sense. As a church from the very beginning, we've decided that we want to exist for the people who aren't here yet. And that's why it's good that there's always a few empty chairs. It's always important that there be room. That was the church in the book of Acts. They existed for the sake of those who hadn't yet come. So let's dig in. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. I hope you'll bring them Sunday by Sunday for the next 24 weeks and begin to mark them up and underline them and, and shove some notes in them. We're going to be in the book of Acts in chapter 1. As you're finding your way to uh, Acts chapter 1, just a, a quick word on, on what this book is because it's, uh, it's the second volume of a two-volume set. The book of Acts was written by an author by the name of Luke. Luke wrote another book in the New Testament, young people. What is the other book that Luke wrote in the New Testament? Luke, that's right. <laughs> the one named eponymously after himself, the Gospel of Luke. And so if you were to flip to the early pages of the Gospel of Luke, I'll do that, you can keep your thumb in, in the book of Acts, you'd see this greeting. He says... I've decided to write this, the Gospel of Luke, as an orderly account for you. And then he names the recipient. Most excellent Theophilus. There's the recipient, by name. Most excellent, this is a person of, of some importance, some education, some stature. In fact, the name itself is curious. The name means Theo, God, Philos, love. It means a lover of God. Some people have wondered, was this a person or is this just for, for all of those people who are searching for answers, who, who want to know what it means to love God in this kind of way? I've decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the truth of these things. That's from the Gospel of Luke. Now, volume two, have a look. Acts chapter one. Verse 1, in my former book, which is what, young people? Luke. In my former book, Theophilus, there he is again, I wrote all about the things that Jesus began to do and teach up until the day that he was taken into heaven. 
So this is Jesus working on earth in, in human form. This is all his miracles, all of his teachings. This is his crucifixion. This is his resurrection. This is God at work in the world powerfully through Jesus. The book of Acts is going to continue the story. This is now God at work in the world powerfully through the living body of Jesus, which becomes the church. Acts, Luke, possibly the Gospel of John as well. There are really only a few books in the New Testament that are addressed specifically at skeptics, written for skeptical people. This is one of them. You notice it in the beginning to Luke and and to the beginning of Acts. The purpose is to let people know the truth about Jesus. It's, It's dealing with issues of truth. And because it's dealing with issues of truth, it's also dealing with issues of of relevance and practicality. Right away, in Acts chapter 1, Luke is showing us that the truth is out there. I mean, it's, it's popping up everywhere. He shows us that the truth is up there. And, and we'll come to talk about what that means. And that the truth is in here. If you flip to your notes in the back of the bulletin, you'll see that that kind of rudimentary outline to the section we're going to look at today. The truth is out there. The truth is up there. The truth is in here. So let's have a look. Let's read together Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about the things that Jesus began to do and teach up until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father has promised, for you have heard me speak about it. John the Baptist baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him. And they asked him, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. Let's pause and pray for a minute and and then we'll dig in. God, in the in the pages of this book, in the story of the early church, help us to find not just the evidence of you at work, 
but something of truth and relevance that, that comes stretching across the centuries for us. God, help us to find in, in these ancient writings something that will challenge us, that will nudge us, that will encourage us, that will grow us. For each of us today, God, I, I pray that there would be something here that is uniquely tailored and shaped for our own lives. God, let it come through the work of your Spirit, we pray. The first verses in Acts talk about the way that the truth is out there. Anybody hear the X-Files theme when I keep saying that? The truth is out there. But, but it was. What do I mean by that? Have a look at verse 3, especially here. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. He spoke about the kingdom of God. Many people believe that the book of Acts, indeed the whole New Testament, was written by a generation of people who were superstitious, who were somewhat gullible, written by superstitious people for superstitious people, relatively superstitious, at least. I mean, they, they believed in miracles. They, they believed in what we might call magic that in their world, in their times, the idea of resurrection, uh, somebody coming back from the dead and wandering around again, that, that that would have been understandable, acceptable, and palatable. It's a pre-scientific world. We live in a scientific age. We don't believe in stuff like that anymore. Relative to us, at least, they were primitive, they were superstitious. And so the stories that come in the New Testament, written about miracles, they would have been easily understood and, and believed by these susceptible, gullible people. And that would be true, except if you read very closely the pages of the New Testament, you find that actually they, they act an awful lot like us. They're skeptical. Uh, they're reticent. Uh, they're slow to believe. They're very slow to come around to the idea that this could in fact be Jesus back again. Matthew chapter 28, if you want, you can flip there. One of the most memorable texts, at least for those who, who spent some time in the church, one of the most memorable texts that we have, the final words of Jesus spoken on earth in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember them, the words of the Great Commission? Go now into all the world, and as you're going, baptize, teach, make disciples, and lo, I am with you always. But if you read, there's, there's actually a little comment, almost like an offhanded comment there in that passage. It says that, that among those who heard those words, there were some who still doubted. They saw him, they felt him, they heard him, and yet they couldn't believe their eyes. And that's what we have here in the book of Acts, in the end of the Gospels. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't just show up once and say, here I am, and everybody goes, ah, oh, you're here. Wow, miraculous. I knew you could do it, Jesus. You're back. No, every time he shows up, he has to go through the same thing again and again to prove to them that he was real and that he was really there. He had to continually prove himself because even when he appeared, people didn't believe their eyes. It didn't matter how many fish he ate on the beach. It didn't matter what he said. Again and again, he had to say, hey, look, 
you can touch. You can, you can hold me. I'm not a phantom. I'm, I'm not a spirit. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. See, I have flesh. I have, I have bones. He constantly was trying to reprove the fact that he was there and he was alive. That wouldn't make any sense if he had appeared to a, a generation of people who were simply gullible and superstitious. Now, certainly, I think we could probably say 2,000 years ago, maybe people were a little bit more open to the possibility of the supernatural than we are often today. Though if you listen to late night AM radio, I'm not convinced. My goodness. And here's the reason why. For them and for us. When you look at the resurrection stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, here in Acts, you'll actually see that what you're dealing with in Jesus is not resuscitation. It's resurrection. There's a big difference. It's not resuscitation, it's resurrection. There are other miracle stories in the Bible, right? There's Lazarus, there's the widow's son, there's Jairus' daughter, people who are dead and they're brought back to life. Even today, there are plenty of stories. There seems to be lots of them lately and they're made into books and sometimes movies about people whose hearts stopped. They were dead and yet they were brought back to life. Miraculous, some will say. And they'll chronicle the journey that they, that they remember. That's resuscitation. And it's wondrous. But here's the difference. They come back into the same bodies that they left. Still subject to sickness. They're still mortal. They're still subject to injury and aging and eventually death. They're resuscitated back to regular life. That's not what happened with Jesus, is it? Every time somebody talks to Jesus after his death, it's the same experience. They don't recognize him right away. And it's only after a time when they listen to what he's saying that, that the light goes on, they realize there's something familiar about this. Why didn't they recognize him? Because he's not back the same way that he left. He's changed. I mean, you see evidence of that. Yes, he's real and he's tangible. He, he eats fish with him on the beach for breakfast. And yet he walks through locked doors. He's there in a resurrected body. This is something new. And nobody expected it. No amount of superstition accounted for it or was ready for it. Not the Greeks, not the Romans. And they were the primary architects of, of civilization back then. Most of the people in that society didn't believe in resurrection at all. In fact, they thought the body was evil. They thought death is a release from this evil thing, the body. The last thing in the world they wanted was to come back in the body. That was wicked. What about the Jewish people? Jesus' own people. Surely they believed in resurrection, right? No. At least half of them dismissed it outright. The other half, if they had a belief in resurrection, what they thought is at the very end of the whole story, when God makes everything right, new heaven, new earth, new creation, that there will be a resurrection and people will come back. But the idea that somewhere in the middle of history, one man would come back resurrected from the dead, that was completely foreign to anything they had ever been exposed to. It made no sense at all. Nobody was expecting it. Not Greeks, not Romans, not Jews. Not even Jesus' own followers, as it turns out. And here's the point. Even though we understand that they were different 
from us. They were just as biased against the idea of resurrection as you or I. They were just as sure that it would never happen. It was just as difficult for them to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. That's why every time he showed up, he had to prove it over and over again. Listen, do this, do this little thought experiment with me. Imagine Jesus showed up here this morning. And I could show him to you. There he is, seated right at the drum kit. Some of you are already thinking, Jesus wouldn't do that. This couldn't be him, right? But there he is. What would it take to convince you that this was him? What would it take? Whatever that is, they must have got it. Because for them, they accepted it as a historical fact. And here's the point. If you, if you remember nothing else about the sermon this morning, you can tune out from here on. But here's the point. That, that for them, the basis of Christianity, the truth of Christianity, didn't feel like something subjective. They didn't believe it because they wanted to believe. And they didn't believe it because it was just an inspiring story. They believed it because the evidence for them was so overwhelming that they were forced to believe in spite of everything that they had previously thought, in spite of all their biases. In other words, they came to believe that the resurrection of Jesus was an historical objective fact. The truth was out there. And it was spreading rapidly, explosively, in the life of the early church. What's the application for you and I? Well, here's, here's one of the things that I, I think we take from it. I don't know, you, you've probably had the same experience as I have people come to you and say, listen, I'm on the fence about this whole God thing, but I'm curious enough about what Christianity is about. Uh, so I'm interested in finding out just a little bit more. And you or I, we might want to say, well, why? I need something in my life. What is it? I, I need strength. There's lots of places you can find strength. I need inspiration. Lots of places you can go for inspiration. I need this or that, and I think maybe Christianity could give it to me. But honestly, I'm a little bit concerned. I'm, I'm concerned that if I become a follower of Jesus, maybe I won't be able to do this thing or, or that thing. And I want to say, maybe you do too. Wait a minute. Wait. So, so Christianity for you is this product, if you'd like, this consumer good or, or service. And you think if you take it down off the shelf, it might do a few good things for you, but you want to make sure it doesn't have too many side effects. Right? Well, you know what I really want to say? Don't ask whether Christianity is practical. At least not to start with. Don't ask whether it's relevant don't ask whether it's fulfilling. Ask whether it's true. Because if it's true, then it will be relevant and practical and fulfilling. If it's not true, it won't be. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, what if I could tell you that as bad as things may seem in the world, someday it will be all put right? What if you could be sure that as as bad as the circumstances maybe of your life might feel some days, no matter what happens, someday it will be put right. Or, or when you're facing death, your own or somebody that you love, 
What if you could be sure that on the other side of that dark door, there wasn't just darkness and nothingness, but the strong arms of God and eternal love? What if you could know that? Wouldn't that be practical? Wouldn't that be inspirational? Wouldn't that give you strength? If the resurrection happened, if it's true, then you can be sure. Christianity is true, then it's incredibly practical and relevant. If it's not true, you're wasting your time, and so am I. We might as well go on up to chorus, have a nice brunch on Sunday. You don't come to Christianity because you think it'll fulfill you, even though it will. Come because it's true. And because it's true, it will be fulfilling. The truth is out there. The truth is also up there, if you'd like. So let's take a look and see. Jesus wasn't just resurrected here. He ascended. That's there in the title of the sermon. The, the book of Acts starts with the story of the ascension of Jesus. It begins in the middle part of the passage. Right there in the middle, in verse 6. Disciples are talking to Jesus. They say, so Lord, are you going to at last this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Oh, still don't get it. Somebody once said that there are at least three theological errors in that one little sentence. At least they got all their errors out in 12 words. The kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom of God is the, is the, the rule of God, the, the will of God, the purposes of God set free in the world. For them, it was about one-upping their enemies. God, are you at last going to give us the political military power? This one little nation, this one little dusty strip of land in the world, are you going to raise us up above all others? Kind of reminds me of the theology behind the World Cup, where God is for our team. Surely he must be on our side and against all the other ones. That's what they thought the kingdom of God was. And Jesus looks at them, and first he speaks, and then he acts. What is it that he says? He says, you're going to receive something from above. The Holy Spirit. We'll come to what that means in a second. You're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a big part of the answer, the kingdom of God. It's here. It's, it's in you. God is moving vibrantly and abundantly in his people. Maybe it's not complete, it hasn't culminated, but it started now. And then he ascends. You may say, well, that's very interesting. Well, what does that have to do with understanding the kingdom? I want to tell you, if you'll bear with me for, let's give it ten minutes. I want to tell you the three ways, when we unpack it, that the ascension really gives us the I think the greatest possible understanding of what Jesus was doing in the world, what the kingdom is. And there are metaphors here. The Bible's filled with images. Some of them are, are, are rich and powerful and memorable, and some of them maybe are a little bit difficult to, to wrestle through. But the metaphors here are, are somewhat familiar. Um, a throne in a throne room. One who ascends to sit at the right hand of power. That's, that's the image here. And we're told that when Jesus ascended, he didn't just go up. He went up to that place of authority in the universe, there in the throne room of heaven itself. 
And that means intimacy and history and strategy. Grab this in your notes because the, the words are they're kind of dense. Relational intimacy, historical strategy, transforming advocacy. That's the three things in 10 minutes. Here we go. Remember that place in John chapter 20, those of you who went through the Bible with us last year. John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene, is. she comes to the tomb, it's empty, Jesus isn't there. But then she encounters him and she grabs him. She just wraps her arms right around him when she recognizes who he is. And Jesus says, Mary, Mary, you can't hold on to me like this. I need to ascend. That, that language, don't hold on to me, actually means quite literally, don't cling to me so tight. Why is she holding on to him so tightly? She'd lost him once. I mean, he was everything to her. Everything that she had lost, he gave back to her. Her identity, her worth, her value. He restored her to society, he restored her to relationship with her creator. But she lost him. And this time she was not going to let him go. And what's Jesus saying? Hey, you need to let me ascend. Because as, as much as you want to hold me forever, you can't do it this way. Eventually, you're going to need to go to sleep. You're going you're to need to eat. You're going to need to let go of my hand. But if you let me ascend, then I will descend into the world in a way that will make me present to everywhere, to everyone everywhere at all times. It doesn't matter. You could, you could be in the darkest dungeon. You could be in the most desperate circumstances and you will enjoy unbreakable fellowship with me. Let me ascend, because my ascension means I will always be with you. And in a certain way, he's saying, Mary, let go of my hand so I can settle into your heart. St. Augustine, one of, the, one of the great philosophers, one of the great theologians in the history of the church, was also a very tender-hearted Christian. And he wrote that, as a prayer when he was talking to Jesus. He said, Lord, you ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. It's the first meaning of the ascension. Maybe the most important. It's intimacy with God. He ascends so that, that he can descend in a way that becomes available to everyone in every moment. It's the experience of God's presence in prayer and worship that, that is the envy of the world. That's the ascension. Here's the second facet, historical strategy. Look at history. You know that place in Shakespeare? I can't remember where it's from. Shakespeare scholars in the room, but one of the characters says, history is a tale told by an idiot, filled with sound and fury and signifying nothing. English teachers, where is that from? I remember it is Shakespeare, right? Or did I make that up? Yeah. A tale told by an idiot, sound and fury signifying nothing. Is that right? I mean, is that what the history of our world amounts to? Is history just one thing after another and no meaning deeper than that? Here's what we're told about the ascension. This is Ephesians in chapter 1. God raised Jesus up from the dead, and then he ascended to the right hand of power in the heavenly realms, a place of all rule and authority. And he placed all things under his feet. And he was appointed to be the head over everything. Why? For his church, for his body, 
The ascension means that the person that we have known and loved in Jesus now has the universe in his hands, in his control. Keep with me for a second. Romans 8, chapter 28. One of the, the most incredible promises, one of the most difficult to understand. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is, in a sense, controlling history in his hands. He's got it. He's got it. You know, as a staff, I think we've come back to saying that sometimes when, when it's just really difficult. We're in the middle of a hard season. We feel like we've been in that season for a little while. And sometimes we'll just look and say, you know what? God's got this. God's got this. God didn't create a world filled with bad things. The world wasn't designed that way with death and violence and suffering. It wasn't there. Those are the things that we brought to the world. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's controlling things so that they become usable by Him. He's even overruling the bad things. He's even using evil to defeat itself. Isn't that what the cross is? Isn't that what happened there? On the cross, the world, the devil sought to destroy Jesus. And you know what? They did. But it was all overruled. And what they actually did was to bring light and immortality to light. Now the cross is the model through which the world is being run. All things work together, even the bad things, for those who love God. Every single thing. God is at work in history overruling those things, allowing evil to defeat even itself. Here's the point. Sometimes it will feel like God is absolutely present in your life. Sometimes it's going to feel like He's absolutely absent. Terrible things are happening. But He's never gone. He's always working. And the ultimate victory is is to see evil undermine itself. To see out of evil and suffering the appearance of something good that never would have appeared otherwise. That's the model. The ascension means that you can wake up in the morning each day and not fall victim, not be paralyzed by the why questions. Why is this happening to me? Why this? Why now? I don't know. But I know Jesus has ascended. That history is in His hands. And God has got this. Here's the last thing I'll tell you. When the Bible speaks about the ascension, remember in ancient times, remember the meaning of the imagery. The throne room of God. What what is the throne room? In Canada we have... We have the separation of powers, right? We have the Supreme Court, we have the Prime Minister's office, we have the Legislative Assembly, we have Parliament. It wasn't that way in the ancient world. You went into the throne room, into the court of kings and queens. That was the place of power and it was the place of justice. It was the only place where you could go. You went to have your concerns heard. It was a courtroom. The throne room was also a courtroom. Here's what we're told about the courtroom of heaven. Hebrews chapter 7, when Jesus sacrificed for sin once and for all, when He offered Himself, it made Him able 
to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. He lives forever to intercede for them. The Bible says that when Jesus ascends, He goes into the very throne room and there He acts as an intercessor. 1 John 2 says He's like our advocate. He's our lawyer, if you'd like. It means in the courtroom of God, the bar of the divine, if there's any charge against us, He's there as our representative. You say, well, well, what does that mean? Again, it's a metaphor for something that's happened, but but let me tell you what I think it means. How many of you are concerned about how you look? Hands up. Are you concerned about how you look? Yep. The rest of you are liars. <laughs> Listen, I mean, some of you spend quite a bit of time thinking about and making sure that you look just right. You put a lot of time in it. Some of you put money into it. I want you to know, for those of us who pretend that we don't care about how we look, we really do. The reason that we do is that we know that there are people out there all the time and they're passing verdicts. There are people walking around and they're looking at you and you're looking at them and you're doing the same thing. You're looking at their appearance and their conduct and their character and their choices and you're passing verdicts. You're saying, wow, or hmm, or ew. <laughs> Another one of those. <laughs> and it's not just about our appearance. Arthur Miller really had his hand around this when, when he wrote a monologue in one of his plays. And his, his character basically says, it's a brilliant way of understanding how we really live. He says, for years I looked at life like it was a case at law. It was a series of proofs in a courtroom. When you're young, you want to prove how brave you are, or how smart you are, or what a good lover you are. Later, you want to prove what a good father or husband you are. Finally, you want to prove how wise or powerful or successful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now, I had this assumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where at last I would be justified or condemned. But there would be a verdict. hear what he's saying, that most everything we do, we're doing to try and achieve some outcome, some verdict. We're trying to please our parents, trying to get the opposite sex to like us, trying to get our peers to think that we're good. We, we need these things. We need these verdicts. We need people from the outside to come in and say, good, great, well done. Listen, every elementary school teacher and, and a myriad of made-for-TV movies have told us that it doesn't really matter what other people think of you, what they say about you. All that matters is what you think about yourself. That is such rubbish. It is, isn't it? You know that it's rubbish. You cannot go through life thinking, I'm fine, when everybody else tells you how awful you are. That doesn't work. We need people from the outside to say, you're great, well done, incredible, best I've ever seen. Those verdicts, they're like a breath of life for us. Why? Because we're desperate. We're trying to prove ourselves. We feel like we're in a courtroom. The Bible says even those who don't claim to be Christians, who, who haven't yet come to the place where they, they acknowledge God in their life, deep down, 
Everyone knows that there is something out there that's bigger than they are. Whatever they may call it. And deep down we live as if there is a bar of justice and a set of standards that we should be aspiring to. And deep down, I think we know that there are parts of our lives that don't measure up. That's why we're so desperate for the verdict. For people to say, you're good, you're good. You're a good person. Because maybe deep down inside we know that in parts of our lives, we're not. Something wrong. We're not living up. We feel like we're imposters. And all of that stays that way unless you understand the ascension. And here it is. We're told that Jesus Christ, our advocate, our representative, our, our, our intercessor, our lawyer, if you'd like, is there on our behalf. There in the, in the place of justice, in, in the courtroom of heaven. What does that mean? It, it means... I don't know, have you ever been in court? Yeah, you don't have to put your hands up. I've been in court. Gene, you've been in court. Gene's one of our resident lawyers, yes. You've been in court. You may be in court and maybe you're tongue-tied. But if your lawyer is eloquent, Gene, you look eloquent to the court. You may be a mass of smoking wreckage, but if your lawyer is poised, you will look poised to the court. You may have no clue But if your lawyer has strategy and it's carefully thought out, your case will look strategic to the court. You are invested in your lawyer. You will look like, you hope, what your lawyer looks like. Your lawyer is a good one. And a good lawyer doesn't just get up there in front of the judge and jury and say, oh, please, could you please just cut my client a break? No. The lawyer has a case. It's thought through. It's articulate. You want to read the case for you? Here it is. Hebrews 7, verse 27. Jesus sacrificed Himself. He sacrificed for sins once and for all. He offered Himself up. Therefore, He's able to save even to the uttermost all those who come to God through Him. And He lives forever now to intercede for us. That's the case. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. Again, it's a metaphor. But I can picture Jesus saying, Father, here's Richard. He did it again. But I'm not asking you for mercy. I paid his debt. Paid on the cross. No need to collect twice on the same debt. I'm asking for acquittal. Not mercy, acquittal. I'm asking for justice. And the verdict is in. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe He's ascended and He's there as your advocate, your defender, the verdict is in. You're accepted. You are freed. You are loved. And that leads to the very last point in just a few minutes. Truth is out there. Truth is up there. Jesus also says now the truth is in here. Going up into heaven, I'm ascending. But the manifest presence of God, the Holy Spirit, is coming. That's how the kingdom works. The Holy Spirit comes into your life to make everything that we've been talking about real. 
We talked about intimacy, but do you experience it with God? We talked about historical strategy, but does that give you confidence? We talked about how Jesus is your advocate. But are you lost in His beauty? Not worrying so much about what other people think. Not, not stressing yourself, working too hard, burning yourself out, trying to fit into a dress size that just wasn't made for you. Because none of it... Brian, yes. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> none of it matters. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it, it just becomes so real. And if you want, I think one of the most dramatic examples in the book of Acts, and we'll end with him, you see it in Stephen. We're not going to get to the full part of his story for a couple of months, but in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was one of the preachers in the life of the early church. He was so effective that, that the adversaries of the church knew that they had to squash him. So they hauled him before a kangaroo court. They found him guilty. They sentenced him to execution. And just as they were about to stone him, they had rocks in their hands. Acts says that, that Jesus gave Stephen this gift. He peeled back the veil and Stephen was able to see up in heaven through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the throne room of God. And he saw Jesus there, his advocate, his, his friend. And the reality of his exoneration there so overwhelmed the, the shadow of this mock trial that went on down here became so much more important that this this sense of peace came over him, and it was visible. Scriptures describe him saying his face became radiant. And he forgave all those who were about to execute him. It's the work of the Spirit. If you find that you're getting touchy because you've been slighted, or, or your life is just relentlessly driven because you're trying to prove yourself, could it be that, that the Spirit of God, His manifest presence, hasn't brought the full reality, the meaning, the importance of the ascension home in your life? Because if it, if it has, there will be courage, and there will be playfulness, and, and there will be poise. Hey, when you think about Jesus now, you think about Him Ascended and radiant in glory? Or are you like I, I think I was for too many years? Caught up and confined with the Sunday school image of, of somebody meek and mild, mild, pasty and white on one of those coloring pages. Let me close by giving a picture of where Jesus is now. Revelation 1. When John the Apostle was at work on the Isle of Patmos, he too had this vision. The veil was peeled back and he saw the ascended Christ and he fell down, fell down as dead, the Scriptures say, and this is what he saw. He saw Jesus. All love and light and beauty and lightning and fire and storm like the heart of the sun. Ancient and forever and wonderful and He's all of that for you. The universe is in His hands, and so are you. 
the beauty of creation and you. The ascended glory of, of your Savior and friend. And, and that's where the joy starts. The truth comes. And you know it. And it sets you free. Amen. Let's pray. Let me invite the worship team to join me. Heavenly Father, we sense sense the work of your Spirit in our own lives. Pray for the presence of your Spirit at work in the lives of the people around us. A lot of us, we've held on to the claim of the resurrection We've said it for a long time, but for some of us, we, we need that claim to be rooted down deeply in our life. Help us to rest and rejoice in the ascended glory of Jesus. Lord, we want to be humble people and happy people and, and courageous people. People who serve, people with a hope that can't be shaken and can't be taken or corrupted. God, make us all of those things. Do it because it would glorify you. Because it would fulfill the deepest longings that we have. Make us into the kind of people that we trust would put a smile on the face of our Creator. God, give us the things not just that we ask, but that we need. We ask for them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.